Okay, so we are in Daniel. We're going to start chapter one this morning. Um, last week, we introduced this book, and we kind of got uh, a big historical perspective and hopefully a good foundation upon which we can build as we progress through this book. Um, so if you want to turn to Daniel chapter one, that is where we are at. Let's read this uh, first verse. It says, In the year, third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And that's no news to us because we introduced with that kind of context. Uh, but here, Judah, and we'll remember that the nation of Judah, or excuse me, not, not the nation, the nation of Israel is split into two kingdoms. Uh, the northern kingdoms called Israel, the ten tribes there, uh, and the southern kingdom being Judah and Benjamin, uh, and, and those two tribes forming the kingdom of Judah. Um, the northern ten tribes have been in exile before, uh, the Assyrian exile, 136 years prior to this, about 136 years. But this is where Judah falls into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is about 607 BC. So 600 years before Christ is where we're at in history. And as we, we talked about last week in a fairly good detail, this is the chastisement of the Lord. This is his correction. And they knew this was coming. They were given opportunity after opportunity to repent, and they did not repent. And so God said, listen, I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar, and this is going to be my corrective hand upon me. And I'll just throw this out there for your consideration. Uh, at the end of this, Judah does not exist anymore. This is the ending of the, the split of the kingdoms. It's a unification in many respects of the nation of Israel again. Uh, granted, that may be under uh, these puppet kings and that kind of, kind of setup, but nonetheless, we see this end um, of a split kingdom at the end of the Babylonian exile. Uh, in 2 Chronicles uh, 36, um, if you want a quick sort of primer on what's going on, uh, 2 Chronicles 36 summarizes all of this. And it's a very, I mean, it's, I don't know, 20 verses or something. It's very short, very quick, but you can get a, a good summary of what's happening and why it's happening in that chapter. Now, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 23. Uh, I'll just put you in remembrance, and we mentioned this last week as well, that uh, throughout the book of Daniel, we have a lot of things that are happening kind of at the same time, and we have a lot of overlap, so to speak, in Scripture. We have 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles talk about some of the same time periods. We have Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, and even Zechariah those prophets are contemporaries of Daniel, and so we have those things coming together as well, all of that. And so we just need to understand that that is um, happening. So when we go read in 2 Kings, it's the same time period. And sometimes we, we fall into the trap of thinking that each book is sequential in its ordering, and while there's some of that is true, there's a lot of overlap historically. And so we get different perspectives in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And then we see sort of some of those things play out in the lives personally of Daniel and his three friends there in Babylon. So 2 Kings chapter 23, 
verses 34 through 36. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the room of Josiah, his father, and turned his name to Jehoiakim, and took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the commandment of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold of the people of the land, everyone according to his taxation, to give it unto Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother, mother's name was uh, Zebuda, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. Uh, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as all of his fathers had done. Now, that reference to his fathers, that's in many respects, that's, that's not a reference to Josiah. Okay, Josiah, who is his literal father, was king. He came to the throne, and you can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 22. He was young. He was eight years old when he came to the throne. And when he came to the throne, the he started to, uh, as they were, they found the book of the law during a renovation of the temple, and he read it, and he said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to honor him. They began to tear down the uh, idols, idols that were throughout Judah, uh, they be, began to start kind of a reformation, if you will, in Judah. Um, not everybody was on board, obviously. There wasn't a mass repentance, but Josiah was a righteous king. Now, he died in this battle with Pharaoh Necho. He, was, he, he went to battle, and he died, if you read earlier in this chapter, um, and he shouldn't have gone. He was warned not to go, if you read uh, in, in Chronicles, but he went anyway. But that reference to those ungodly before him were other kings of Judah. Most of the kings of Judah, with few exceptions, Josiah being one of them, were not good kings. And in many respects, Manasseh being one of the most evil kings of all time in Judah, uh, what they're reaping is what he has sown. But he's the son of Josiah, this righteous king. So Jehoiakim, in many respects, knows better uh, but he does wrong anyway. Now, here we have uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He comes in. It's, it's the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, um, and it's the, really the first year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And this begins the 70 years of exile, and this is when it begins. And the reason I say this is when it begins is because at the end uh, of Cyrus's reign, when they get to go home and rebuild the temple and all that stuff, there's a 70-year period there. God said 70 years, 70 years if we count it from here. So uh, in God's time, that seems to be where it's at. Turns me to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. It's going to be to the left of Daniel. Jeremiah 25, verse, uh, verses 1 through 14. We're not going to read the entire thing uh, necessarily, but... This is, Jeremiah is the prophet that God has used to speak to Judah over and over and over. And, and so when you read Jeremiah and you read about the destruction that's coming, you read about him, uh, you know, lamenting, crying, and mourning, grieving over the destruction of Jerusalem in Lamentations, this is the period of time that we're studying. And so he says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. King of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuch 
first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I just pause right there for a moment. We just read in Daniel that it was the third year, excuse me, the fourth year. We just read here uh, from Jeremiah that it was the fourth year, and Daniel said it was the third year. And, and I just, so how do you reckon that? I mean, we have two different years. It's both the first year of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. The, the difference is this. It's how they reckon it. Daniel, Jeremiah counts the first, counts an entire year in the year that Jehoiakim came to power. So Jehoiakim comes to power late in the year. Jeremiah counts that as an entire year. Daniel doesn't. Daniel starts his reckoning from the first calendar year, whole calendar year. So, so I mean, you have a few months of discrepancy, but that's why. And so I just bring it up because it's, you know, one of those discrepancies or, you know, contradictions in the Bible. It's not really a contradiction. Uh, yeah, it's just not a contradiction. But we have this happening in verse 2. The which Jeremiah, the prophet, spake unto all the people of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even unto this day. So this is something that it, Jeremiah has been prophesying for a long time. And the people have not responded to it. Uh, and in fact, it is, he says in verse 4, uh, the Lord has sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not hearkened nor inclined your ear to hear. So Judah has been rejecting of what is happening. Uh, they, they're, they've turned to idolatry, as we talked about last week, and that's really one of the big things uh, that's happening here. Verse 8, this is the consequence. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and a perpetual uh, desolation. It, this, is, this is the consequence. Let's jump down to verse 12. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations, and will bring upon all that upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in the book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of them also, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. So. 70 years, there's going to be a 70-year period where they are in captivity or servitude to Babylon in one way, shape, or form. And in fact, Jeremiah, if you remember last week, there was some warning, right? Don't listen to those false prophets who are telling you, hey, just, just a few more years and God's going to deliver us. He says, no, because there is a 70-year period. And so 70 years. And at the end of that 70 years, and that's when Cyrus comes to reign. I mean, the Babylonian Empire has ended All of these things have happened. All of this happens, though, and remember, this is in Daniel's lifetime. You have the establishment of an empire, one of the greatest empires, uh, in many respects, one of the greatest empires, one of the most well-developed empires that's ever existed, and in 70 years, it has fallen and is ruled and, and been taken over by two other empires in Daniel's lifetime. God is sovereign and in charge here. God knows what's going to happen. God knows. 
all of this to bring about the redemption of his people. So despite the certainty of judgment, because this is coming, the nation of, excuse me, the kingdom of Judah is not repentant. Uh, this is coming. God extends the certainty of redemption. The certainty of redemption. And all throughout, we talked about this last week, right? That we have that as, as the righteous, as the servants of God, we have this assurance of his deliverance that God knows how. And this is one of the key themes in Daniel. We see him deliver the righteous. We see them upheld. We see them promoted to positions of authority. All of those things being true, and we see them in Daniel. Okay, but we have the promise of redemption. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. Let's begin in verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. God says, listen, I have a plan and a purpose. Right, this morning we learned a big word in, in Sunday school, supralapsarianism. This is an exhibition, an exhibit of superlapsarianism, right? Here it is. This is something that God had a plan and a purpose in, and that plan and purpose for Judah in some respect was right here to be that model people, that example people that God is using to show us his faithfulness, that he's going to deliver us out of the bondage that we have to sin and death. In Hebrews chapter 12, by way of application for us today, Hebrews chapter 12, because this is why you'll, you see there in Jeremiah chapter 29, and God said, listen, I'm going to do this. Then you will call upon my name. There is a result. There is a returning to him as a result of the chastisement that they received at his hand by Nebuchadnezzar. And we find the same principle at play in the New Testament in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. And the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, could have given up. They could have been distraught. But through this, they see the faithfulness of God. And here we are, when we are as the children of God, corrected by him, don't faint. Don't despair. Verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. In other words, God loves us too much to leave us in that sin, just as he did with the nation of Israel. That's the example that we see whether it's the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, Judah. God loved them too much to leave them there. The plan of redemption and what he was trying to convey to us throughout this history was too important to have it marred. And so he said, I'm going to correct. And even that is an example of my faithfulness, of my love, and of my mercy to you. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he corrects, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. 
If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Okay, God doesn't correct, so to speak, those who are outside of his family. There's a difference. They're receiving something else, but it isn't this loving correction. This, the, the motivation there is different, perhaps. Uh, and I'm going to have to leave it at that. Verse 9, furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they, speaking of our earthly fathers, verily, truly, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. And we who are, are believers, right, we take the word of God and we say, man, there's a lot that it says to us about training our children, about correcting them. And it isn't that we're, uh, what it, as it says here in the King James, that they are chastened us after their own pleasure. It isn't, that's easily misunderstood. What it means is that we are correcting our children the best that we know how in accordance with what God has given us. When the word of God says to train and to correct and to uh, chastise your children, we do so in obedience to that. And we're not perfect. And so after our own pleasure, that's what it's a reference to. It doesn't mean that we just do what we please as parents. We don't have that liberty in Christ. But God is here and, and, and is doing so for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Uh, nobody wants to be corrected. In the middle of it, it is not joyful. It's grievous. It's hard on us. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. That's exactly what we read in Jeremiah 29, that at the end, when you, there will be this, after the 70 years, then you will call upon me. Then you will pray to me and I will hear. There is a turning of their heart. It brings about in them this peaceable fruit of righteousness, just as it does with us. That God, who is faithful and loves us so much that he won't leave us in sin, but is desirous that we would be corrected and brought back into close relationship with him, not that he moved away, but because our sin causes us to hide from him, if you will, if I can just phrase it that way. He is there ready to correct and to bring us back to himself. And, he, and he, he has these words of encouragement for us. He brings about the peaceable fruits of righteousness, verse 12. Wherefore, right? wherefore means because of this. In other words, because of the truth of God's love for us and his, and his caring and loving chastisement, because of that, because that is true and that is the motive behind it, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. And we've all seen this and we've all done this. But you remember when you were a kid and you got in trouble and what was your posture? I mean, you said, oh, the feeble knees, oh, woe is me. My hands are hanging low. I mean, right, this posture of, uh, I mean, it's, 
I'm busted. I'm in so much trouble. We've seen this and we've done this, but it, it's, it's an accurate description of what it is. And what he's saying is, listen, because we know what this is motivated by, because we know where this is originating and what it is designed to bring about in us, we can with confidence lift up those hands that hang low, straighten out those feeble knees. It's an exercise of faith. I am choosing to participate with God in this correction, in this chastisement. And we're going to make straight paths for your feet. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. I'm going to get on board with God. If I can just phrase it that way, I'm going to say, Lord, I see that this is what you're bringing about. This is an area that you have put your hand upon in my life that I need, that I need to see the way you see it. And God, by your grace, help me to walk in that understanding and that truth. Let me learn the lesson and yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness in my life through this correction. We have the confidence that God is doing this as a result of his love and concern for us. We have that assurance. Just as Judah had that assurance. In the middle of prophesying against them, Jeremiah prophesies to them, God is near and will redeem. Nebuchadnezzar, let's talk about him for just a moment. He is clearly God's instrument. He is the, the, hand, the, the instrument of God to bring about this correction. Now, in Isaiah chapter 42, uh, and, and Isaiah was prophesying about the correction of, upon the nation of Israel that was coming before it happened. But in Isaiah 42, verses 24 through 25, and we're just going to reference that, put it in your notes, there is a prophecy that correction is coming. That because of the sin of the people that is coming, God is going to have to correct it. Now, we already read in Jeremiah chapter 25, uh, verses 8 and 9, where God tells them that it's coming again, and he tells them specifically that it's going to be by uh, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Behold, I will sin and take all families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. My servant. There, this isn't something that Nebuchadnezzar is I mean, he is endeavoring on his own, but we look at the sovereignty of God, which is a theme that is consistently interwoven throughout Scripture, but specifically in Daniel, we see the sovereign hand of God intermixed in every aspect of it. And so here, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, he's going to be the one that is the instrument of correction. Jeremiah chapter 27, Jeremiah 27, verses 5 and 6 we looked at this last week, but by way, just to put us in remembrance of it, he says, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given unto whom it seemed meet unto me. Just pause there for a moment, right? We have this foundation of understanding as we studied through Romans, and we looked at those higher powers, those that God has established to be in leadership, the rulers that are over us. And we talked about his sovereign hand and how he is in control of all that, bringing about his plan and purpose for the redemption of mankind, for the furtherance of his kingdom, all for his glory. And he's saying the same thing here. I am the creator and I gave 
my creation, the stewardship of it, the control, the power, the ruling of it, to whom I saw fit to give it to. And he continues on. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. This judgment that is coming, we have this picture that God is clearly in control, that he has clearly established Nebuchadnezzar in his empire to be the corrective hand of God upon the nation of Israel. He's given it to him. And he calls on his servant over and over throughout, throughout Jeremiah uh, and, and even in, even in uh, Kings and Chronicles. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar, we, we have to understand, these are, the, these are the guys that are ruling at that time. God's dis, di, disposing of the kings of Judah, and he's bringing in Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to be the ruler uh, at this time. Now, uh, he lays uh, drew, he, siege to Jerusalem, uh, and, he, and he takes it, and he puts it, uh, gives a victory to, uh, we, need, we need to read verse 2. We didn't read verse 2. <laughs> and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his gods, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Okay, so when Nebuchadnezzar come in, comes in and he besieges the city the first time, and then he takes these captives and all of those things, we kind of looked at that last week, the first deportation into Babylon and Daniel being part of that. Uh, he takes part of the vessels of the house of God. He takes some of the, those things that are in there. And we, we don't know exactly what those vessels were, at this point, exactly which ones they were from Daniel. But he takes them and he puts them in his how in the in the temple of his god and that's in the land of shinar that's in the plain of shinar which is familiar to the nation of israel this is part of their history this is part of the history of the world in genesis chapter 10 let's turn there genesis chapter 10 and genesis chapter 11 i want to look at a couple of verses here in Genesis, God told Adam and Eve that they needed to go and fill the world. That was his command to them, after, I mean, before the fall, but even after the fall, he says, listen, go and populate, fill the world. And all the people that were descendants of Adam and Eve, instead of filling the world, they sort of got together in Shinar, and we have these people who are, um, you know, they're, they're mighty people, and they sort of rise to leadership amongst those that they're around. We find that happening with Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, uh, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Eric and Akkad and, and, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. It's the same place. Right, so here people are getting together. They're not dispersing throughout and they're in Babel. Right, Babel, Babylon. It's the same place. And then in 11, uh, Genesis 11, verse 2, uh, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And the next thing is, hey, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower to the heavens. This is where this happens in the land of Shinar. 
The nation of Israel is familiar with this story. They know what's going on here. They know the history. They know where they're being sent. And it's interesting to me that where, not to over-spiritualize something, but where God sends them to be corrected is one of the first places where God had to, after the fall, that God had to deal with all mankind. So listen, I'm going to have to scatter them. There's nothing, if they all stick together like this in disobedience, there's not going to be anything to hinder them. And so let's confuse the language. That's where we have all these different language groups popping up. And this is where it happened. And where are they going back to be corrected and brought back to the Lord, back into obedience? Shinar. I, you know, I don't know if God intended anything by it, but I found it to be interesting. They're familiar with this. Is God giving them a reminder of his faithfulness, of, his, of all of those things, of his corrective hand? Is he giving them a clue that I am dealing with you as my special people, those that are of concern to me? Perhaps. Verse 3. Daniel 1, verse 3. And the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar, the king, uh, spake unto Asphanaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and the princes. Nebuchadnezzar took the most promising youths, and, there, and, and you read different commentators and, and those kinds of things, and there's a, a broad range, but they're probably in, in the 12 to 18 year age range. I mean, they're not children. The word there doesn't mean children, but they're youths. Uh, so they're not adults, but they're somewhere in that ballpark. They might be a little older than 18, but they're, they're not kids. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't taking these kids, but there's a really good chance that Daniel and, and his three buddies are, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. We don't know with certainty, but we do know that they're probably on the younger side because they lived long enough to see the fall of, or at least Daniel did, to see the fall of the Babylonian Empire, that 70 years. I mean, if he was 12, he's 82. That's pretty old. So it doesn't mean that God didn't bless him with long life. I'm just saying. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar took the most promising youths from Judah to be trained to serve in his court. That is the purpose. They're going to serve in his court. And there's reasons for all these things. And we'll come back to that. Uh, but this is, this is foretold. This is part of the prophecy that is, that is coming down about the judgment of God. This is what they're told is going to happen. Uh, in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 20, if you want to turn there with me, 2 Kings chapter 20, we're going to read verses 17 and 18. <clears throat> He says, Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, this is something that God is speaking. He's speaking in general, uh, but he's speaking this through Isaiah to King Hezekiah. Which makes it possible 
that Daniel was a descendant of Hezekiah. We don't know with certainty, but there's a possibility because he's specifically told, this is the prophecy, this is what's coming, the, the son that, that shall issue from thee. So there's the real possibility that Daniel or Azariah or Mishael or Hananiah, one of them is quite possibly a descendant of Hezekiah. We don't know. We do know that he's probably either descended from royalty or nobility. Because as we look at the proclamation of Nebuchadnezzar, that's where they're drawing them from. This is foretold. This is prophesied. This is what they're expecting. As we get into Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 39, we find a reiteration of this uh, later on. Isaiah 39, verse 7. I'll just read it to you. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is, again, Isaiah writing to Hezekiah. It's, this, it's, it's the same thing. Isaiah wrote it down. It's written down by whoever was writing things down in Kings. Okay. Um, verse 4. Children. Okay, so in the king is taking these things. Bring certain of the children of Israel in the king's seed and of the princes. Children in whom was no blemish. Okay, so, so they're not lame. Uh, they're not ill, nothing like that. They're well-favored. That means that they're handsome. I mean, aesthetically, physically, they're, they're good-looking kids. They're skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science. And, and science, you know, we, we have a different connotation there, but it just basically means that they understand the world around them. That's what it means. And such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. You look at the characteristics here. They're looking for the best. Only the most promising youths were taken. And this is an effort. Why are they taking these kids? Why are they teaching them uh, all of these things and bringing them to stand in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar? It's an effort to naturalize Judea into, excuse me, Judah into Chaldean culture. They don't want an uprising, so they're bringing them into leadership, so to speak. But we need qualified people to do that with. So get the best. There's more than meets the eye, though. Okay, there's more than meets the eye. Turn with me to Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22. Uh, let's read verse 29. Says, seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings, he shall not stand before mean men. When we look at Daniel, and as we progress this morning, this lays a foundation of understanding for us about the character of Daniel, the character of Hananiah, of Mishael, and Azariah. There is something greater than what can be seen about them, something greater than their expression of understanding about the world around them something greater than being smart and educated in those things that Nebuchadnezzar was looking for. In Jeremiah chapter 29, I want to develop this thought and understanding here because 
it lays for us a foundation of understanding. When we look at Daniel and we look at the things that he purposes and the things that he does, he's not doing them in some respects for Nebuchadnezzar. He's doing it because he's serving the Lord. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. They're commanded when they go in. This is what God tells them. Hey, go ahead and live as, this, as you would normally live. Build houses. Have gardens. Have your kids getting married. Continue to have children. All of those things. And then he says this, And seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused thee to be carried away captives. And pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall you have peace. While you're there in this 70-year period, God tells them to seek the peace, to seek the best for the place where they are, to pray for its peace. And so Daniel is in obedience to the Lord, per, putting effort into this. Brings me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I want to make a parallel here between Abraham and his faith that he exhibited and the faith of Daniel that we see exhibited by his obedience. Because the two are the same. Daniel is making a faith decision, and that should become more clear as we progress this morning. But in Hebrews chapter 11, let's begin in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed and went out not knowing whether he went. I just think about Daniel. He's taken. He knows where he's going, but he doesn't know exactly what it's going to be like when he gets there. Similar. Yet Abraham, by faith, sojourned in the land of promise. He went where God said to go, and he stayed there, and he did what he was supposed to do there. He sojourned in the land of promise. as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Abraham is looking for something greater than just this promised land. He's there in obedience, and God has promised to give it to him. And here's Isaac and Jacob, his descendants, and they're recipients of the same promise. Wherever your foot treads that I'm going to give you. But there are greater promises being made there, and Abraham, by faith, is understanding that these promises are something greater than just this country that I'm hanging out in my tent. And here is Daniel on the other side of, side of the same faith equation, and he's saying, listen, I'm here. God has told me, he's commanded me to seek the best for the country in which I'm in. And here I am brought in to be somebody that stands in the court of the king and to be trained in that. And so therefore, I am going to, by faith, obey God in that. Verse 11, Hebrews 11. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. Because she judged him faithful who had promised. That which was impossible because of their faith became possible. And don't take that to any 
odd or extreme end. This is the promise of God that is being fulfilled here. God is making this and bring, happen and bringing this to pass. But we see this faith linked to it. So here is Daniel. And as we progress through the book of Daniel, as we look at the things that he does, as we look at the wisdom and the understanding that God imparted to him to even interpret not just the dream, but what was the dream, because Nebuchadnezzar can't remember it. That's an impossibility. Yet by his faith, and we'll see that clearly demonstrated, God gives him the dream and then the interpretation of it. By his faith, what was made impossible was possible. We're going to see it even next week. Verse 12, therefore sprang there even of one and of him as good as dead, so many as the stars in the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. They're looking for something else. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, if that was the one they were thinking of, then they would have gone back to it. Verse 16, but now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And we see Daniel, and we see all of this stuff happening. Daniel gets to see the fulfillment of God's promise on the other end. He gets to see the deliverance and the return of the nation of Israel to their God. And God's unashamed faithfulness and concern and care for them. Daniel is operating in faith in everything that he does in this first chapter, and really throughout the rest of the book. Colossians chapter 3, by way of application for us, we live in a world that is uh, less than friendly to what the Word of God says, less than friendly to uh, truth. Yet we are told to, uh, just as the nation of Israel that we are to live a particular way when we're here. Just as Daniel and Judah, as they're in Babylon, are to seek the best and the peace of that country, we are told to pray for those who are in leadership, that we might live a peaceable life. We are commanded to do all things without murmuring disputings, that we may be blameless and perfect in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We have a witness. We have something that we are doing. We are conveying something to the people around us. We're going to see that happen through the book of Daniel multiple times. To so much so that we find these proclamations. We're going to worship the God of these guys. We're going to worship the God of Daniel. We're going to, we're going to honor him. Now, whether that's a statement of conversion or not, I, I don't know. We'll have to really wait till we get to heaven. But nonetheless... There is an effect of the word that they are having upon them, the witness that they have. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, it says, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Here is Daniel, and he's not serving Nebuchadnezzar. He is, but really Nebuchadnezzar is only reaping the benefit of Daniel's service to the Lord. Daniel walking in obedience to God and therefore he reaps the benefit of it. 
Whatever Daniel does, he does it as if he's serving God directly. And the same should be true of you and I. When we, when we go to work, when we go to our jobs, when we engage in whatever we're engaging in, our service to the Lord and doing it as honoring to him is going to bring about a benefit to our employer, to those that we are serving, to, to, in whatever capacity that might be in. We're serving the Lord. We're operating as if we are doing it directly for him. And in all honesty, and in many respects, we are doing it all for him. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I referenced this verse just a moment ago, but let's read it now. Philippians 2, verse 12 through 16. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It, that, that, that term, work out your salvation, that means that we are to live it out. In other words, this is what God has said. This is what is true. This is this is how he said we should live. We are responsible to live that out. And we do it whether, and that's what Paul is saying to the Philippian church, whether I am here with you or not, that is what you're doing. We are responsible before the Lord, not responsible before Paul, not responsible before our pastor, not responsible before, we are responsible before the Lord. So we're going to work out our own salvation. We're going to live it out with fear and trembling. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in many respects, that it's a twofold meaning, right? That first of all, it's a wonderful thing. It's an awe-inspiring thing because here is God, the creator of the universe. And we fall into his hands, as Jesus would say, but if I can use that illustration, it fall into his hands and nobody can take us out. Which is a statement and understanding of our redemption of the salvation that we've received through him and in him alone. But on the other side of that, it's a fearful thing. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here he is. For unbelievers, right, there is the, the expectation of judgment. And for believers, perhaps there's the expectation of correction, of chastisement. And as we talked about, we don't have to be fearful or loathing of that. We understand that brings about something in us greater than we could have brought about in ourselves by any means. Okay? So we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. They may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I, may, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Just as Daniel stood out and we see the reception of that message that he lived and the articulation of his faith and trust in the Lord throughout that book, we find that we have a very similar task as the ambassadors of Christ, that our witness can be confirmed or can be pulled down, if I, if I can phrase it that way. I don't know if it's ever lost. God is greater than my sin or my failure. But it may be detracted from 
There may be additional hurdles to overcome in that witness if we are not living in a, in a way that is in conformity to Christ. If we were wandering around murmuring and disputing, if we're, he says, don't do that, that you may be blameless, you may be harmless, that you may be recognized as the sons of God without rebuke, right? Without any equivocation in the middle of a crooked and perverse nation, which is where Daniel finds himself which ultimately in many respects is where we find ourselves today in a, in a nation that is contrary to and even antagonistic and persecutory of you and I who would strive to serve Christ. And we have this admonition and this example to serve the Lord, to do everything as heartily unto him. that We might be his witnesses, a light in a dark world. They were taking the best of the best and they were looking at what was on the outside. And those were those talents and those abilities, those skills, those things that they had were well and good. But there was something greater within them that they couldn't see. In the same respects, we have that greater in us. So let's back to Daniel chapter one. Back to Daniel chapter one. And I want to read verse five, and then we're going to get into verse six. And the king appointed them daily provisions of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This is the first time that we find Daniel's name here in the book, except for the title. This is, this is where we find Daniel, and, and here he is, and we have three friends with him, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And I want to talk about their names, because we need to be recognizing what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. The name Daniel means God is judge. He's in control. He's, he's the one who has the authority and the jurisdiction to give judgment. We have Hananiah. The Lord has been gracious to me, is what that means. Mishael, he who comes from the Lord. Azariah means the Lord is my helper. Each one of these names, all four of them are reminders of the Lord and of his faithfulness, of his sovereignty, of his control, of the fact that he is their creator. Now, in verse 7, read me with me in verse 7, it says, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. So we have these four Hebrew boys. They have their Hebrew names. And the prince of the unit gives them Babylonian names, gives them Chaldean names. And he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. So he gives them these new names. And, I mean, you know, we, we call Daniel Daniel. But we call the other guys by their Babylonian names, don't we? That's how we know them. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. We do a disservice to them in using those names. Belteshazzar, Daniel's name, it means Bel's prince. Now, Bel is the primary god, the false, primary false god that they worship. And if we look in Daniel chapter 4, verse 8, 
But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. And this is, this is what being recorded, what Nebuchadnezzar said. Why did he name him that? Because it's in accordance with the name of my God. And in Daniel chapter 5, verse 12, for as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, this is, this is the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel. And he named him after his God, Baal's prince. Shadrach, it's, it's a reference to sun worship, which is part of their, uh, their deity as well. Meshach belongs to Shishak, which is another of their false gods. Abednego, and I put the hyphen there because that's how you pronounce it, Abednego. Servant of Nego, another false god. All of these were named after Babylonian gods, and these new names are designed to replace the quote-unquote reminders that they had in their own names and to assimilate them more quickly. You look at what's happening here. Nebuchadnezzar is doing everything. He says, I'll give you provision. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Okay. I, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going, to, I'm going to, in his essence, replace God for you. And I'm going to remove every reminder and vestige of those things. Those things you hold on to are going to be hard for you. And we look at what we find ourselves in, right? Here we are. We live in a world that tries to infiltrate and replace God all around us. Remove him from our memory, if you will, which is our predilection. We read that in Romans chapter 1 and 2, right? We don't even want to keep him in remembrance. There's nothing new under the sun, and that's exactly what they're doing here. They're trying to assimilate them into their culture, into their world. The world around us is doing the same with Christianity. They're doing the same with Christianity. And not only just the world around us, but the enemy, Satan himself, is doing similar things, trying to be more palatable and to cause this syncretization, this mixing of Christianity with false religion, to somehow confuse the line in the sand that God has clearly drawn. What's in the name? It's pretty important what's in the names that God has given these men. Now, in Daniel, and we're just going to introduce this topic, okay? Uh, but in verse 5, it talks about the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat. He's providing them food and wine. And in verse 8, it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested, excuse me, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And I just want to highlight this and, and talk about this just a little bit. Daniel's resolution has nothing to do with meat and wine. That's just the manifestation of it, but it has nothing to do with that, right? I mean, think about it. Wine is nowhere prohibited in the Old Testament law. It's not. And neither is meat, okay? Daniel's resolution, what he is purposing here, is to trust God in his provision and to walk in obedience to him. In other words, for you and I, by way of application, Daniel is purposing to trust God 
and to walk as his servant, to remain salt and light. To not somehow mix, what part does light have with darkness? He is trying to remain uniquely a servant of God, just as we should strive to remain uniquely disciples of Christ. That's what this is about. So let's look, let's, let's, let's see what Daniel's understanding as a Hebrew, as a Jewish boy uh, who is well-educated would have been. Okay? First of all, let's go to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17. In Leviticus, we find, we have obviously the Levitical law. We have, that's what's happening. That's what's being given. Okay? And God is giving this to a nation that is wandering in the wilderness and they're going to be wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Surrounded by all of these people, all of these ites, all of these other uh, nations that have their own pagan gods and worship. And so God gives them some very specific direction. Leviticus 17, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and to his sons, unto all the children of Israel, and say unto them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, what man soever there be of the house of Israel that kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or that killeth it out of the camp and brings it not unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation to offer an offering unto the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood shall be imputed unto that man. He shall shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Just pause it for a moment. Let's look at what I just said. God says, listen, if you are an Israelite, you're one of my people, and you kill an ox or a sheep or a goat, whether it's in the camp or outside of the camp, right? Those are the clean animals. Those are the animals that are clearly and specifically brought for the, the, the atonement. Those are the animals that are brought for the sacrifice for sin. There's, you know, if you can't afford that, there's some provisions made, but right, these are the, and I'm just going to phrase it, clean animals, the ones that are specifically set aside by God for particular offerings, and that's a key point for us to understand. And he says, if you do that, if you kill one of those animals, but you don't do it as an offering to the Lord, you're guilty of murder of that animal. God's going to impute that as a sin to you. That's going to be a problem. Okay, let's continue on. Verse 6. <clears throat> Can we read that part? Yeah. Uh, verse 5. To the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices which they offer in the open field, even that they may bring them unto the Lord, unto the door of the tabernacle of congregation, unto the priest, and offer them for peace offerings unto the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar of the Lord, at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and burn the fat for a sweet savor unto the Lord. Okay, this is, uh, and, and he tells them in verse 17, and this is a word of clarification, so they, excuse me, verse 7, and they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils after whom they have gone a whoring. This shall be a, a statue for them uh, throughout their generations. So what God is telling them is, listen, there is no room for idolatry. In fact, if you're going to kill one of these animals that is clearly set aside as an offering, you do it clearly as an offering. There's no misinterpretation that this might be idol worship. That's what he's saying. Now, there are those that will say, well, the nation of Israel, they couldn't eat any meat unless they were going to offer. Well, that's not true. If you jump down to verse 13, hunting was permissible. But these particular animals for this particular time was prohibited. 
Now we get to Deuteronomy chapter 12, turn there with me, because I want to look at both sides of this. There is a difference, and I think it helps, gives us some understanding. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 13 through 16. And we have the same topic being addressed, same thing happening, but we have a different audience and we have a different context. Deuteronomy, the, the generation that wouldn't trust God, that fell into idolatry before they'd even received the Ten Commandments, has passed away. They're about to go in. This younger generation is getting the retelling of the law, a reiteration of it, and God is clarifying something. Clarifying is the wrong word. God is uh, he's applying it to their current circumstance. I'll just say it that way. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 13. Take heed to, the, to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest. Okay? So you can, you can have burnt offerings, but you can't do it everywhere. Why? <clears throat> he tells us. But in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there shalt thou do all that I command thee. Right? So the tabernacle is going to be in one place. And you bring your offerings there, okay? Notwithstanding, so this is there's a difference here. There, there is a, a difference because of the change of audience and the change of circumstances. Notwithstanding, thou mayest kill and eat flesh in all thy gates. Whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee, the unclean and the clean may eat thereof as of the roebuck and as of the heart. And if you go back to Leviticus 17, 13, it says, hey, you can go hunt all the deer you want, all those wild animals. You can hunt them. You can eat them. That's fine. And what he's saying here, whatever you want to eat, as far as meat is concerned, you can do so as, just like you had the freedom to eat the deer and the, the roebuck, those, those animals, do the same even with the clean animals. Right? Those, the ox, the sheep, and the goat. Those things that were before prohibited. It goes on. Verse 16. Only shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it upon the earth as water. Now, the only difference here is the context, is the audience, right? We have this adulterous, this idolatrous generation, and they've passed away. They're also surrounded by all of these ites. But what is the first thing they're supposed to do when they come into the land? Run them out. Utterly destroy all the nations, the Hittites, the Amorites, the all of those nations that are there are to be run out. And they're specifically told that you do not study how they worship their gods. They can offer these things. They can do these things differently now in Deuteronomy because there is no, the temptation to idolatry is less. We're not following after other gods. Not only that, we're not all surrounding the tabernacle. The offering that has to be brought, there, there are certain offerings that God has commanded. You go and you go there and do it. But there are other offerings that can be offered elsewhere. So just keep that in mind. God is giving them that clarification. They're not all surrounded living in this uh, community that, with the tabernacle in the center. God's going to establish it in one place in the country, and there's potentially hundreds of miles. So God's saying, listen, I'm going to make accommodation for you. I'm going to allow you to do things differently because of the context in which you are going to be living. Because those things are gone. Because that, that's gone. So here's the thing. 
it isn't about the meat. It's not about them being able to eat ox or sheep or goat. It's about actively choosing to flee from the temptation of idolatry, to not fall into idolatry. That's why God gave them that prohibition in Leviticus. All right, so let's take that understanding and let's apply it to Daniel's circumstance. He says, I don't want to defile myself. I don't want to uh, corrupt myself. I don't want to be that, that trusts upon the king for his provision. I don't want to be him who, who isn't grateful to God who is provided rather than Nebuchadnezzar who is provided. His defilement isn't about the meat. His defilement, the temptation for Daniel, is to lose sight of who God is and what he has given him. It's not about the meat. Don't get confused. And, it, and we had that clarification in the wine. Wine's not prohibited. It's permissible. But Daniel says, I'm not going to defile myself with the king's meat or the king's wine. In addition to that, we, we know that oftentimes here they're eating, uh, because we can see what they did, they're eating these animals that are sacrificed to idols. And Daniel says, I'm not going to participate in that. But this matter of conscience, that also factors into this. Though I think it's a secondary issue for Daniel. He wants to remain faithful to the Lord, and he doesn't want to lose sight of who is providing for him. We're going to get into this more next week, but I want to talk about this idea of purposing. It says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with his wine, which he drank. The word purpose, it's the Hebrew word sum or seem. And I'll just tell you that it's a very common word. Okay, you read it throughout the Old Testament, it's very common. And it means to establish in a place. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, God put, he established Adam and Eve in a place. He put them there. In Exodus chapter 17, uh, verse 14, it says, rehearse this. Moses, go tell this in the, not Moses, but go tell this in the ear of Joshua. Rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. Go put it in his ear. That's what it means. Go talk to Joshua. Tell him what, I just, what you just saw, what you just heard. Okay. It, it's translated in many different ways. But if we put it into an operational definition from the idea that Daniel is here being resolute, it means to establish with unshakable permanence. Daniel, Daniel says, I purpose with, un, with an unshakable permanence to not defile myself before the Lord. That in no way, shape, or form am I going to fall into the trap or the temptation. In fact, like Joseph, who fleed from temptation, I'm going to remove it from myself so that I may not stumble. I purpose to serve the Lord. And I'll just tell you, this is, the way I think about it, this is actionable faith. This is Daniel Here's what I believe. This is what God has said. I trust him. And this is how I'm going to put that into practice. It is actionable faith. And if we look at the definition of faith, the only definition that we find in scripture, Hebrews 11.1. 1, now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, which is, in my opinion, I mean, I'm not a scholar or an expert on biblical languages, but I do know that Faith is the substance, and substance means the assurance, the absolute certainty of those things that are hoped for, the evidence 
or the confirmation of those things, the proof of those things which are not seen. Daniel is here operating in faith, and he's saying, listen, I'm going to be resolute and unshakable because I know with certainty who my God is. And I know with absolute assurance what he has said and what he has promised. The context of Hebrews 11.1, 1, leading up to this definition of faith, is Hebrews 10, which should seem obvious. But I want to look at a few verses here, right? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, for the law having a shadow, right? So we're talking about typology here. We learned about some of that this morning. The shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers there, there unto perfect. It's just a representation. It's not the real thing. It's something that leads up and is an illustration. That's what we're doing in Sunday school. We're looking at some of these illustrations, these types, these shadows, so that we might understand what is casting that shadow. We jump down to verse 12 in Hebrews chapter 10, 12 through 14. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, speaking of Jesus Christ very clearly. And from context, this man, Jesus, one sacrifice for all sins, sits down on the right hand of God because it's done. There's nothing left to be done. From henceforth, expect until its enemies be made his footstool. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. There's nothing left wanting. So here we have this definition of faith, the clear, the, the firm expectation, right? I have the assurance of the things that are hoped for and the evidence of those things that are not seen. Verse 18, now where, the, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, as a result of the offering being finished, of that perfection of our salvation, Having therefore, brethren, boldness enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Verse 32 of Hebrews 10. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of affliction, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. There's this identification with the church and this rejection of the body of Christ by the world around them. For he had compassion of me, uh, of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing yourself you have a, in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which have great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Daniel waited for 70 years. He waited a lifetime to see the promise of God. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, he is back. My soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. We have this context leading up to this definition of faith, that here it is. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. To the world around us, preaching of the cross is foolishness. But to you and I who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, 
It is life and hope. We have that assurance. We know that it's true. Why? Because we've experienced it. But we're not left there. We have the, 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 the substance, the assurance of those things that are hoped for. Right? We can look back on history and we can see this progressive revelation. See how it worked all three of those in there? This progressive revelation of God throughout history. How am I going to save mankind? And he gives us just a little bit here, a picture there, and some understanding there, and we see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And with that fulfillment, there are those things looking forward to, just as Abraham was looking forward to this country, just as Daniel is looking forward to this promise of redemption and restoration with their God as a nation. We have these expectations looking forward. And we have the certainty of those things because we have the certainty of our salvation. We have those things that are hoped for, and we know that they're going to happen. We have the evidence, the proof of those things because we have the proof of our salvation. The earnest of, the, uh, of our expectation, the Holy Spirit within us. We have all of that leading up to this confidence. Daniel established a line in the sand that his faith would not allow him to cross. He would trust in God even if it meant hardship or death. I mean, here he is. I'm about to go and ask for special treatment and accommodation. As a prisoner in a strange land, I'm going to ask for an accommodation, some special treatment, because I have faith, I have trust. So here's a few questions for us to consider. Does our faith lead to action? Here's Daniel's faith. What he believes, what he's purposing to do is to trust in the Lord and operate in accordance with what he has said. Does my faith lead to that kind of action? Where I'll draw a line in the sand and say, I will not cross that. My faith does not allow. And the other question that we have to consider with that, where might my life witness differently? If I'm doing everything as unto the Lord, and I'm to be doing things without murmuring disputings, that I might be a representative, this light to the dark and this crooked and perverse nation that I, am, that I live in, what areas of my life are saying something different than what I say I believe? What hypocrisy might I have these are questions we need to consider. Does my faith lead to action? And where my, my life witness differently than my profession? A couple of things in regard to, uh, I'll leave, leave you with those to pray through. Uh, God's going to do a lot better job by the Holy Spirit than I will in engaging you in that. But a couple of things to consider as we look at purpose. Here is Daniel, and he purposed, he resolved to trust, and like I said, it's more than just meets. He trusts based upon God's word. This is what God has said. This is what he has revealed. Daniel's purpose is in accordance with God's word. Psalm 119, if you'll turn there with me, Psalm 119. <clears throat> and let's look at verses 105 through 112. 
Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. There's a line in the sand. This is the actionable faith. I have sworn and I will perform it. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy word, except I beseech thee the freewill offering of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. My soul is continually in my hand, yet do I not forget thy law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I erred not from my precepts. Thy testimonies have I taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I've inclined my heart to perform thy statutes always, even unto the end. The word is a lamp unto my feet. And what does that lead to for the psalmist? It leads to these firm conclusions. This is the resolve. This is the purpose of my heart. And I will incline my heart to perform thy statutes e always, even unto the end. Psalm 1-6. Right? I mean, this was our memory verse, one of our memory verses last week. Psalm 1-6. The, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. He's establishing it. He's laying it out there. He knows what the end of it is. In 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, you'll turn there with me. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. It says, In this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. This is Peter, here he is, and he's talking, he's referring back to seeing Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw this, and this is what we heard. This is my beloved son, verse 17, in whom I am well pleased. That's what they heard. He's giving that witness, okay? We also have a more sure word of prophecy. That's an interesting thing. It's an interesting statement. Here, we heard God the Father speaking from heaven, witnessing Jesus Christ in his glory, and God says this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Yet Peter says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. And what is that? It's the scripture. It's what is written. It's what God has inspired men to record on our behalf. Wherefore, you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place. Right? We can hone in on it. We can see it. Light in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. It wasn't given, it's not some special, God gave it as something to give to you and I. He didn't give it just to Jeremiah. He didn't give it just to Isaiah. He, he gave it as his word, as something to be recorded, as something to be confirmatory of the truth. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. It wasn't Isaiah coming up with these things to say. It wasn't Jeremiah saying, listen, I think this is what's going to happen. It was what God was giving them. It wasn't their private interpretation. They weren't making it up. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The word of God for you and I is an even surer thing upon which we can build our line in the sand than Daniel had. 
because we don't have these pictures and shadows, things looking forward to. We see the fulfillment and the perfect fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ. If we draw a line in the sand and we base it on anything less than the truth of God's word, it's going to fail. It's subject. It's relative at that point. Here's the thing. Just like Daniel, he resolved before he asked for permission. He resolved before, I'm convinced he resolved before he fell into exile that he would serve the Lord. This is his character, period. It didn't arise as a result of falling into captivity. This happened. This was his purpose. This was his resolve, not to defile himself before the Lord, but to trust and operate in obedience to the Lord before he ever got to Babylon. We have to resolve. We have to purpose in our heart to be a disciple of Christ, to follow him, to walk in obedience, to build our life upon the word of God before anything happens. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Second Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I chose this verse, there's probably others we could have looked at, but I chose this one because it gives us the implication, right, that there is something happening beforehand. The study part. I know the word of God. This part, this is what's in me. It is the abundance of my heart. And therefore, when I purpose and I resolve to stand upon it, it's what naturally is coming out anyway. We built that into our life so that when we are hit with adversity, when we're hit with hardship, we stand. I read a story of a missionary just by way of example, and I, I'm going to share this, and I don't want to disparage anyone in this context because it would be extremely hard. And as much as I, I, to, I would like to say, yeah, I would never do what this person did, I don't know, and we wouldn't know. But this man and his wife, they're out on the mission field there in Africa, and they leave the mission station with this other couple. They partner together, and they go out to this village, and this village doesn't want them there. Won't let them live among them, won't give them food, nothing, won't trade with them. But they did allow them at a distance to build a couple of mud huts, and they lived in these mud huts. And there's this one little boy that's allowed to come up and he can trade with them. And that's all. That's the only, only interaction they have with this remote tribe of people. And as this couple is there for a period of time, they have a baby, the, the wife dies in childbirth, which is tragic. And, and how would I respond? I don't know. And you come through this, and this man, just distraught at the loss of his wife, ends up going back to the mission station. He, he leaves this infant, this newborn baby, with some other missionaries and goes back to the country he came from. And that's seemingly it. You know, I mean, it's it's tragic story. You get through the end of this, right? This child grows up, and she ends up reading this article in this mission magazine about this man who is uh, 
sharing the gospel and having this great effect upon the kingdom of God for the kingdom of God in Africa. And it's this single little boy they got to minister and trade with this couple. And over the course of time, she has the opportunity to go and meet her father, who she's never met, who has other children at this point, and just is distraught and curses God for everything that happened to him. Because in his mind, it just wasn't worth it. And I bring this story up because as I read this story, as I, and I look at what happened, and I'm going to tell you the end, just give me a minute. I, th I thought to myself, was he ill-prepared? And I realized that that's somewhat judgmental, but I was trying to reflect upon myself. What would I do in this circumstance? Had I built in my heart that which I wanted to come out of it when whatever may come my way? Had I purposed in it and done, the, done those things ahead of time necessary that I might stand and be Daniel in the midst of adversity? This man, he just curses God because it, it wasn't worth it. I lost everything. And his daughter, who he had abandoned, gets to share with him, but it wasn't for nothing. This is what's happening. And he's on his deathbed at this point. And he comes back to God and he rejoices at the sacrifice that was made, as hard as it may have been, how that brought about and was for the honor and the glory of God to the salvation of all of these people who had rejected he and his wife. They'd all come to faith. This lady goes later on and she visits this village. And they say, you got to come to your mom's grave. This is one of our most cherished places. She gave her life, just like Jesus gave his life for us, that we might hear the gospel. Was he ill-prepared? I don't know. But am I ill-prepared? Have I changed the abundance of my heart? Have I built what is there so that when adversity hits, I may stand? When I am standing there before kings or before those that I have to make an appeal to, and we're going to talk about appeals in a couple of weeks. Have I done what is necessary that I might stand no matter what? Have I purposed in my heart? We have to do that beforehand. And here's the thing that I want us to, to leave us with. We have some things to consider. We have some things to pray through. We have some things to look at, but I also want to put us in remembrance about the comfort that we have as believers in our resolve. Right here we are. We choose. We, we're, we're going to trust the Lord like Daniel. We're going to walk in obedience. We're going to be those shining lights in the world around us. And we have, you and I as Sons and daughters of God have the assurance that God is with us, that he is sovereign and that he is just. In Joshua chapter 1, I should be able to quote it to you, but I can't give you verse 9 off the top of my head. Joshua 1.8 was a memory verse. Let's read Joshua 1, 8, and 9. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. There's something that's going on beforehand, a purposing of what is going on beforehand, a preparation, meditation day and night, 
for then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, then shalt thou have good success. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Whether we're Daniel in Babylon, whether we're believers in America, no matter where we are, we see that foundational understanding of the word of God being key to our standing for the Lord. It wasn't too long ago we had that that instance with the the bakers, those Christian bakers who, who stood their ground. They'd drawn a line in the sand and said, I cannot prepare that cake in this circumstance because of what I believe. And they lost everything. They lost their business. They lost, I mean, this was in Oregon. It went so far that the Oregon Department of Labor said, you can't talk about this anymore. They had their free speech removed from them as a result of that. Yet they had purposed in their heart. They had stood. They had prepared their heart and they stood. Even though they lost everything. And they were willing to do so for the kingdom of God. For the glory of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, and it's almost cliche to go here, but by there's nowhere else that we can go in Scripture that reminds us of the faithfulness of God in the midst of adversity, in my opinion, very few other places than Romans chapter 8. And I want to read verses 31 through 39. Because we need to have this settled within our hearts and minds. We need to know that this is, in fact, the truth for you and I as believers. What shall we say then? If God be for us, who can be against us? Really, we could stop there. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God, the creator of the universe, is on our side, no matter what happens, we know that he is in control. Just as we look at Daniel and we look at the sovereign hand of God and everything that is playing out to the, to the redemption and to the restoration of relationship with his people, we have the same God in action in our lives. If God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And even in the midst of that statement, right? It's, don't feel as if we've lost those who give their life on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ for his glory. They count it an honor. For his sake, we are killed. We willingly give ourselves. That's what's being stated there. But he says, nay, in all these things, whether death or life, we just sum it up that way. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
We have this comfort, this, the, the, these truths from the Word of God that come alongside us in our resolve. One more reference in Hebrews chapter 10. I know we were there a little earlier, but Hebrews chapter 10, as we close this morning, beginning in verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ and the confirmation and the promise and the assurance and the comfort that we receive. And God, I just pray for everyone here that by your grace, we would be those who have established ourselves as we have therefore received Christ, that we would walk in him rooted and built up. God, by your grace, help us to be those who would establish ourselves in your word and stand resolutely upon it that the abundance of our heart may be consistent with the profession of our faith. Lord, keep us until we are together again. And as we have opportunity now to worship, to sing praise, and to give thanks for who you are and what you've done, as we read in your word earlier in Psalm 119, Lord, may it be the offering, and may you hear it and receive it as a sweet savor. In Jesus' name, amen.